Hello and welcome to episode number 173 of the DBSA podcast. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books. With me today is Elise, also from Smart Bitches Trashy Books. We're going to talk about managing chronic pain, different kinds of chronic pain, and how books help her when she is feeling pretty miserable. I want to warn you that much like last week, this is a not safe for work conversation. However, today this is dropping on Christmas, so I'm going to guess that you're off. Maybe you need a break from the family. Go get your headphones and hide for the next hour because it's a little gross at times, but it's also very funny and very frank. So I just want to warn you, if you get a little grossed out by frank discussions about biological problems, you might want to skip this one. But one of the things that we talk a lot about is how women's opinions and feelings and their self-diagnoses when there is a problem are often brushed aside. So we talk very frankly about a lot of problems and maybe those problems affect you too. This podcast is brought to you by Intermix, publisher of The Clockwork Samurai, the steamy new gunpowder chronicle novel by national best-selling author Jeannie Lin. The podcast transcript is sponsored by Renee Adie, author of The Wrath and the Dawn, published by G.P. Putnam Sons Books for Young Readers and available in print and ebook. This sumptuous and enthralling retelling of A Thousand and One Nights will transport you to a land of golden sand and forbidden romance. She came for revenge, but will she stay for love? The music you're listening to is provided by Sassy Outwater. I'll have information at the end of this podcast as to who this is. And as always in the show notes, there will be links to the books that we discuss. And I will warn you in advance, we talk about a lot of books. So maybe you got a gift card for the holidays and now you'll know what to use it on, right? Right. So now on with the podcast. You wanted to talk about chronic pain. I do. I mean, well, nobody really wants to talk about chronic pain, but I think we should. Yeah, I think you're right. So what is chronic pain? So I suffer from a condition um, that fibromyalgia. Oh, that, that's not real. That is not real. It's, it's a not real thing. at all. You made it up. I did make it up. Um, that On the is, internet. It is classified as widespread pain and chronic fatigue. Um and it's different for everyone who suffers from it. So I hate trying to give specifics because everyone's body is really different. Um, for me, fibro is I have uh, very distinct flare-ups where I will have this kind of chronic, um, widespread, very deep pain in my body. And one thing that people with fibro say a lot is that they feel like it's like a muscle pain, kind of like when you have the flu and you're very achy, but it feels like it's way down deep inside your body, like in your bones, right? You can't really, uh, it's not like when you pull a muscle and you can identify acutely where that pain is coming from. And then it's post- a much deeper ache in other words. Right, right. And then, um, a lot of people with fibro, myself included, suffer from weird skin pain. So, like, I feel periodically like I have a sunburn, um, but I don't, where, like, your skin is very sensitive to the touch. Ugh. Yeah, it's a weird, it's a very weird sensation. And so it's also very terrifying when you don't know you have fibro and you're like, why does my skin all of a sudden hurt and feel really hot? Like, what what's that all about? Um, And then also chronic fatigue. So it's the closest thing I can equate it to is like I had influenza A once where not like the stomach flu. I mean, like the flu they vaccinate you against where you you have like 103 fever and you just want to die. 
Um, and that like muscle ache and fatigue was very similar to what fibro is. So when I say chronic fatigue, I don't mean like I could really go for a nap after work. I mean, it's like when you go to the grocery store and you come home and your body is telling you, if you don't take a nap right now, you're going to be sick. Like you're dizzy, you're nauseated, that level of fatigue. I remember the first time I got the flu and I got the flu twice in three years and both times it became pneumonia. So I was, I was very well acquainted with that flu. I remember very clearly that it started with aching on my left side of my body, my ankles, my knees, my hips, and my shoulder, all on the left side were aching so badly while I was driving the car. And then mm -hmm. by the time I got home and you know, the flu hits you very fast. By the right. time I got home, I was like, what the hell is wrong with me? But I at least knew, oh, this is what it feels like when you get the flu. Well, that's great. Better clear my schedule for the next, you know, three days. Turned out to be two weeks. But at least then you know what it is. When you don't know what it is. Oh, that, it's very scary. That adds to the pain. Right. Um, the other thing that, uh, so we don't really, I should specify, we don't really know if I have fibro. I have been diagnosed with fibro, but my, the specialist I see suspects that I have something else going on that at some point in my life will be broken out of the fibro diagnosis. Like it's very similar and related, but not exactly the same. And the reason he thinks that is I also have um, chronic nerve pain, which is not necessarily a common symptom of fibro. I have neuropathy where I have pain that radiates from my neck down both my shoulders, um, down my arms and into my hands. And that's not a typical symptom of fibro. But what they found is that some patients who have been diagnosed with fibro, um, they have done studies that have found that they have um, as many as five times more than normal, these very small nerve fibrils in their body. And so they think that there are some people who have that and there's, there's actually a neuropathy, there's something going on with their nerves um, that might be slightly different, but related to what most people experience when they have fibro. But the truth is they don't know. Uh, it's a condition that affects mostly women. Oh, well, it's then not, it's completely made up. It's not diagnosable with any kind of test. Like there's no blood work. There's no CT scan that they can do. They basically just rule out a lot of other factors. And he actually told me when I sat down in his office the day I was diagnosed is, I said, why has it taken so long? I mean, it, it had been years. I said, you know, I've seen so many doctors. And he said, people don't believe that this is real because it affects predominantly women. And I thought, holy shit. I mean, the fact that he actually came out and said that just, mm -hmm. you know, flat out. Because um, it's a girl amazing. thing. That's why. Right. It is. It's a like girl PMS thing. wasn't real, except, oh, oh, it so is. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, um, yeah, you know, and, and one of the things that always blew my mind was that a lot of the doctors who told me there was nothing wrong with me were women. So uh, it actually took seeing a male specialist to get a diagnosis. You know, I would like to be surprised, but I'm not because when I started to realize that I was having problems with fertility when I wanted to get pregnant and I could not, the female doctors that I saw first, and I don't think that this is just because of their gender, but I'm surprised <laughs> that it was, they were just like, oh, keep trying. It's fine. Yeah, there's nothing more discouraging than being really scared about what your body is doing and feeling really unsettled and out of control. And then going to someone who's supposed to be, you know, a professional and have the answers and have them dismiss you. Um, I've 
probably, I mean, the furthest back that I can distinctly remember having significant pain was probably 2009, between 2007 and 2009. And I was not officially diagnosed until 2013. Good grief. So, and some of the things, I mean, I had a, my primary care doctor, who I no longer see, told me that she did not believe that it was an actual diagnosis when I asked her about fibro. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, so no, she's not my doctor anymore. I can't even, I, uh, okay. Mm-hmm. But one of the Oh, mis- you just read about it on Wikipedia, so now you think you know. Right, yeah. right. So, um, you know, I think one of the things that's really, really frustrating is is being discounted and feeling like you you aren't being heard as a patient. And then to add to the fun, almost all patients with fibromyalgia also suffer from either depression or anxiety or both. Which is not surprising given that you have this overwhelming amount of physical discomfort that you can't figure out and make go away. Right. And then so what happens is it gets thrown into, well, you feel this way because you're depressed or you're not, your coping skills are bad or it's all in your head, which. And you're doing it it to yourself. Right. Right. And if you, if you, if you did this, you wouldn't have this problem. So from like 2007 to 2013, I had a lot of depression and anti-anxiety medication thrown at me um, by different medical professionals that really did nothing to help the situation. And you feel like a failure from that, too. You know, I'm taking these these drugs that I see on TV that are supposed to make me feel better, and it's not working. And I remember the day I went on uh, fibro medication, which actually um, does work for some forms of depression, but it was a very different drug. And I was like, holy shit, I feel better. So how do you cope? Because you wanted to talk about how you cope with yeah. books as part of your strategy to manage chronic pain, because part of part of chronic pain, I imagine, I, I don't have it, um, but part of chronic pain, I, I imagine, is just learning what level on what day you can tolerate. Yeah, it's very much, it's, it's a combination of really planning ahead and also being spontaneous, because I don't know how I'm going to feel on a day-to-day basis, so I have to be spontaneous, and when I have a, a really good day, get stuff done that maybe I can't do on a bad day. And also not live in fear that you're never going to have a good day again. Right. And then the other part for planning is just really knowing, you know, how how much you can take in a given day. I think one of the things that people with chronic pain or chronic conditions have to do that, that maybe normal people don't do is you have to be aware of if I do X, I will have to pay for it later, right? And yes. how much am I willing to pay? And so I've been reading this book by Jill Shalvis, which is really, really good. Um, It's called Still the One, and it's part of her Animal Magnetism series. But in the book, the heroine, um, Darcy, has she was in a a terrible car accident and and suffered very severe injuries. And I mean, it took her a year to be able to walk again. And she will always have chronic pain for the rest of her life and has to cope through that. And one of the, there's a scene where she's going out to dinner with the hero and she really, really wants to wear these sexy high heels. And she's sitting there debating, okay, if I wear these shoes tonight, I will have to pay for this later on. You know, I will hurt because of it later on. Is it worth it to me to put these shoes on? And that's not a, I think, a, um, a thought process that maybe everyone has to go through. And I was really amazed at how well she captured 
having that kind of um, pain and having to think that way because of, you know, having a chronic condition like that. I have a friend who also has fibromyalgia and who went through a very similar long saga of non-diagnosis when she was convinced that there was something going on. And she has that same experience, whereas if she overexerts herself um, and does something with a friend, her friend will be a little sore the next day. She will be in bed unable to move because ordinary overexertion she pays for at a rate of 10 to 20 times what she used to. And she's, she's a pretty athletic person, so this is incredibly frustrating. And it affects her in a way that she has to sort of mentally school herself daily about it. Yeah, it's, you know, for me, it was a multi-step process. Incidentally, I don't know if your mic is picking this up, but we have a Dewey cat right now. Excellent. <laughs> He's over here jingling. Hey, um, Dewey, how's it going? I, I always appreciate pet guests. Um, Spawn is next to me, but he's sleeping upside down on his back and probably won't make too much noise because it's not food time. But I'm, I'm glad to know there are cats. It makes the podcast better. It does. <laughs> so when I was finally diagnosed with fibro, um, one of the things that I really liked is the rheumatologist that I see as part of a pain management program. So in order to see him, and he's a very good doctor, and I wanted to see him, when you first get diagnosed, you have to go through a multi-step process, which is you are required to go into counseling or therapy. Like if you, if you are non-compliant, you cannot be his patient. You are, and, and not indefinitely for a period of time, you are required to see a nutritionist, and you are required to see a physical therapist. You have to do all three things or he will not treat you. So if you wanted to go in and just get medication, it's not going to happen. I know that a lot of, about, about a few pain management doctors that um, friends of mine see. They don't tell you who their pain management doctor is. Like you, even the patients are very guarded about it because finding a good pain management doctor is very difficult. It really is. And so I think for me, the psychological counseling was huge because we live in a society where I had to wrap my brain around the fact that not being well was okay. And it was, you know, you, one of the things that drives me nuts is you go on Facebook or Pinterest and you see like all of these motivational um, quotes like, you know, pain is just the weakness coming out of your body or some bullshit like that for, I don't know, I'm assuming it's like for athletics. Like, no, pain, pain is it, weakness leaving the body. No, right, like, no <laughs> pain is a sign that something is really wrong here and you need to reevaluate what you're doing. And, um, you know, I think we, we live in a society that champions going to work when you're sick. Oh, yes. Pushing yourself past your boundaries. This I makes mean, me bonkers. Oh, me too. You know, being, um, I don't have kids, but being the kind of mom who works 40 hours a week and still has everything in her house look like Pinterest, right? And so uh, I'm we, not like that. <laughs> I'm not a mom and I'm not like that. Um, so you have to reset your thinking to it is totally okay to take care of myself and to have self-care days and to say, these are my limits and I'm not going to push them because this is not good for me. So um, I have kind of a love-hate relationship with my body. I tend to think about it in the third person. Like, <laughs> you know, it, it's not my body. It's like this other person. And sometimes she pisses me off because she can be a real asshole. But I also have to take care of her. Yep. <laughs> and it was so, so hard for me to say, okay, I'm working from home today. Okay, mm -hmm. I don't feel good and it is totally justified 
that I don't go into work or that I, you know, come home and take a two-hour nap after work. And I think that's just something that everyone kind of has to work through individually. But one of the things that really helped me get through that was reading. And when I have a bad pain day, I'm so physically limited to what I can do that even hobbies like knitting or crocheting, because I have so much hand and arm pain, I can't do those things, but I can always read. Yep. And so that's really become my mental sanctuary. No, I mean, it's also escapism too, right? You know, I'm going to think about this book and then I don't have to think about the fact that I didn't go to work today Mm -hmm. or I wasn't able to do this other thing that I wanted to do. One of the, one thing I know that really frustrates many readers is when um, someone goes decides to to go off about how ebooks aren't real and and paper books are the only real and lasting item. And there are so many people for whom paper books are too painful to hold. Yeah, and absolutely. That ebooks have been like a physical revelation for them. <laughs> It's like, you know, your little quibbles about format and what you think a real book is are really kind of tertiary or completely unimportant when it comes to someone who physically can hold a book again because the the pain is otherwise manageable with a handheld reading device that that weighs, you know, three or four ounces. Or even think about the, the people who have a hard time seeing in large print books. I used to work in a bookstore when I was in college. And this was before e-readers. I mean, large print books, there weren't a lot of them, and they were just so expensive. Oh, my God. They're so, so costly. And you can just get an e-reader and blow, or a tablet and blow the, uh, oh, the I font do that. size up. I do that. I have the world's most excellent eyesight. And I, I mean, I've, I've worn bifocals since I was two. I have incredible strabismus. I'm super, super awesome cross-eyed. I can cross my eyes in all kinds of crazy directions. I'm 2,400 in one eye and 20-something not even very good in the other. Like, I cannot see anything without my glasses. I'm not legally allowed to get behind the wheel of a car without my lenses on. Someone's going to come get me. And when I can crank the size of the text on my Kindle up to what I call great grandma size, it is so relaxing. It, yeah, I mean, that is huge. Or even um, being able to alter the font, uh, the color. I mean, all of that, I think, is really important. Oh, it is. So when you have people who are like, well, that's not a real you know, book. I just want to hit them with my very real three-dimensional Kindle. The only disadvantage I've found with... Um, e-readers and this is part of the reason I prefer paperbacks is when I am using an e-reader because I cannot physically see how much left I have in the book uh-huh. I convince myself that I can just go a little bit farther because I'm sure I'm really near the end and you keep and then, going and then it's like three in the morning <laughs> and sleep also affects your pain management yeah I mean unsurprisingly people with fibro do not sleep well and that's a huge part having like good they call it sleep hygiene which I always mm-hmm. think is funny because it makes it sound like um, oh no good sleep hygiene is very important my my top three things to take care of myself and I'm someone who does not have chronic pain are did I eat correctly am I getting enough sleep did I drink enough water and those are huge and that's one of the first things they tell you you know when you have fibro or something else going on is your sympathetic nervous system is jacked up so um, make sure you don't have low blood sugar, make sure you don't yep. get dehydrated, yep. and sleep as much as you really think you need to sleep. Which for me, if I were to just let myself go and not have to get up, I'm probably, I sleep probably about 10 hours a night. 
Oh, easily. And I absolutely need eight hours. If I don't have eight hours, I'm pretty bad the next day. And I would say the longest I've slept at one point, like straight through, is about 15 hours. And my husband has been rallying for sleeping to be some kind of Olympic sport because he's <laughs> convinced I'll medal. He's like, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you it's going to be gold, but we can get you a bronze, Elise. Um, basically, when I don't feel good, I turn into a cat. I sleep a lot. Mm -hmm. I like search out sunlight because sunlight helps, I think. Yep. And I get really bitey, like irrationally bitey. Like, yes, I want I want hugs and kisses, but I might bite you too. I don't know. <laughs> so. I generally think of my Im immune system as a somewhat silly thing. Like, it really doesn't make a lot of sense. It's very goofy. But I, I also, because you were talking earlier about um, how we are conditioned to feel guilty for taking care of ourselves as mm -hmm. women and even in American work culture. Oh, absolutely. Like my, my husband has to be vomiting up two lungs and a kidney before he thinks that it might be a good idea to maybe not work out that day, but definitely not go to work. I, as a boss, send people home from work all the time and they get pissed off at me and I'm like, you, you can work from home. I'm kind of like a bartender. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. All you are You're doing the work bartender. <laughs> is infecting the rest of the office, and it is pissing me off. Like, you are not going to win any awards by sticking this out. Go the fuck home. And yet, I got a lot of negativity um, when I was out of work for having pneumonia. You were out for a really long time. And I was like, well, yeah, yeah. because, yeah. you know, I couldn't get off the couch. I think that... In American culture, at least, there we have a huge problem with ignorance about how our bodies work. Um, no. And just how science works in general. No. I, I know. It is absolutely shocking. You know, I think that people don't understand, like, basic disease transmission, which blows my mind. The number of times – I used to work in this huge office building. I think there were, like, a 1,000 employees in there at any given time. So this is big. And – the number of women I would see not wash their hands after they went to the bathroom blew my mind. I mean, it was like, what about kindergarten did you not pick up on? Oh, my right? God. You sing the alphabet song in your and head. We, and and I know by your shoes who you are. Yes. I used to work in an office with a lot of young people who were in their 20s. And that was a huge problem. And I was like, I'm going to get sick because you idiots don't wash your hands. So I started doing anonymous signs in the ladies' room. And they got they started out pretty benign. Like, wouldn't washing your hands with warm water feel really good right now? And here, here's some free lotion. Like, I would bring in a bottle of lotion. If you thought your hands were going to get dry, here's a nice lotion. Um, and then I then it didn't work. So I escalated. You know, washing your hands helps keep all of us healthy. And then I was like, it sure is great the way you spread urine onto the copier. Thanks for that. <laughs> Not to mention fecal matter. I've yes. enjoyed my E. coli. Thank you. I was so pissed. I was so mad that I had to start dropping words like urine and fecal matter onto like these signs because people didn't wash their freaking hands. Both my sister and my mom are nurses and there's like a, a meme or something that says, you know, you're a nurse when you wash your hands before you go to the bathroom. Oh, and then after you go and to the bathroom, after you go to and the then you use a paper towel to touch surfaces within 30 feet of the bathroom. I'm, I have to flush with my foot, even if it requires like some kind of crazy fucking gymnast move. <laughs> and then you're on the balance beam and now the vault and the toilet is flushed. And then I have to um, 
like touch everything with paper towel. I'm very germ phobic, especially like in public arenas and bathrooms. The literal worst experience of my life, I'm just throwing this out there, was being in O'Hare and having to go to the bathroom really bad in between flights and you're trying to corral all of your luggage and your jacket and you're sweaty because you had to run from one terminal to the other and sitting down in a giant hot puddle of someone else's pee. If we are the gender that sits down to pee, how do we hit the seats? Who are these people that are 12 feet tall peeing from nine feet in the air? I don't get it. I literally don't get it. I mean, I live in a house with three males and there's still less pee on the seat in my house than in a public toilet in in a ladies' room. So what are some books that you that you really use or that you look for or what are plot lines that you look for to 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 manage chronic pain and just feeling generally crappy? I read a lot of historicals when I feel sick um, or feel crappy or need to be uplifted. I was wondering kind of why that was. And so this is my theory. When I read contemporary romances, because you're in the present day, you're in the current moment. They acknowledge kind of all the crappy stuff that's still really going on, whereas historical romances are kind of like in an idealized past where we don't worry about the servants or the fact that your teeth are probably falling out of your head or that odds are you're going to die in childbirth, right? It's kind of this nice, tidy, little um, self-contained fictional world. Yes, and like um, the, the Bridgerton world of Julia Quinn's novels, because there are so many past heroes and heroines among the characters, no one is going to get sick and die. Right. Basically, it is an entire world populated by dukes that look like Chris Evans and Sebastian Stan. That's it. Yep. Like, that's all you need to, and very pretty dresses. Great teeth. Great teeth. No morning uh, breath. Right. I was talking to my husband the other day. I'm like, you know what I just realized? No one in romance novels gets up to pee after sex. Which I don't understand because the PCU, the post-coital urination, is very important. It is. It's incredibly important. And and also, you know, almost to the point where it's like part of the ritual. Like, well, thanks for that. I got to go pee. Don't want to get any PCI. <laughs> but can you imagine even like how much more awkward it would be in a Regency? Because she'd be like, uh, hang on, I got to slide the chamber pot out from under the bed. Don't want to get a UTI and die because we don't have any uh, sulfameth drugs yet. <laughs> in a world without Cipro. Right. <laughs> we all pee in the chamber pot when we're done. <laughs> so it's like you're not even getting up and going to the bathroom. You know, Mr. Darcy's just like laying there in bed propped up on one elbow and you're squatting over the chamber pot talking while you're peeing it's so true and yet that is a crucial part of a lot of people's lives romance novels are magic that way we get to skip over these slightly more i like pleasant parts it's like everybody poops except in romance novels and the streets of london are surprisingly clear from both human and animal waste oh of course like the heroine can just go run off down the street no problem Right. There's not. There's, there's no poo splatter. No poo splatter at all. The Thames definitely doesn't smell like. A I sticker. might have to call this episode "Poop and Romance." <laughs> Please do. It's going to be the most now. Listen, y'all. This is not safe for work because of grossness. So tying back into fibro. Oh one, God. <laughs> one thing. No. So when when I'm so I'm sitting in my rheumatologist's office. This is the day I was diagnosed, and I'm literally I'm in tears. I'm crying, which is very common because not because I've been diagnosed, because I have been diagnosed. Like this is such a a huge thing that I have a name for this, and it's real. And, and so I'm, I'm not there, I'm not out of my mind, and no one's going to look down at me and talk to me like there's something wrong with me, and it's all in my head, and you know, right. yeah, it's it's real and maybe treatable. Right. And so he's, and then he's like, 
these are other things that go along with having fibro and we're going to talk about them. And then because we weren't having enough fun with the chronic pain, IBS is also thrown in there, which fortunately I don't have, but because I have fibro, I like to pretend I do to get out of like awkward social situations. Like I really, really, really wanted to go to your wedding um, reception, but my irritable bowel syndrome is acting up. So sorry. No one argues with IBS. No one. They just look horrified. Did you know that there's a romance novel where the heroine has Crohn's? No. I love this book. I can't believe I haven't told you about this book. Okay. Tony Blake um, has the, uh, the Destiny series. And the Destiny series all takes place in Destiny, Ohio. Um, the first one is One Reckless Summer, which is, which is pretty good. I like that one a lot. But then Whisper Falls, the heroine moves back home because she has terrible, terrible Crohn's. And when she has a flare-up, she can't take care of herself. And Crohn's is some serious shit. Sorry, I couldn't. <laughs> um, Boo! No, I mean, I, I have known people who have had Crohn's, or I do know people. I mean, that's that's bad. I mean, you're talking potentially removal of part of your colon. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, they don't mess around. And she moves back home because she has these episodes where she can't take care of herself. And so she moves home to be closer to her parents and she's lost a lot of weight. She's not very healthy. She's physically still dealing with this physical condition that is going to just reduce her to the couch if she doesn't like, if she doesn't take proper care of herself. And even then sometimes it's like, yay, flair. But she falls for the, her new next door neighbor who is a biker. And he, um, I think he fixes them at his garage. So he's got motorcycles coming and going all the time and she gets really annoyed about it. But there's a point where he comes over to help take care of her. And it's the most intimate and touching scene because it, he's, he's like, wow, this is really awful. Okay, how can I help you? That's really amazing. I, um, I mean, and, and seriously, Crohn's, not a very sexy disease. It's not like... It's it's not like, you know, consumption where you can sing a few arias and, and still right. be beautiful before you die tragically during a you know big swell of violin music. No, Crohn's is awful. Yeah. You what should read the, that one. I will definitely read that one. The other thing fibro patients have that I do have, which is just so much fun, is um, urinary issues where you feel like you have a urinary tract infection, but you don't. Which is really fun for distinguishing when you do have a urinary tract infection from phantom weird urinary pain. So I was recently, this is, we're going to just going to talk about pee. So We've already I, talked about everything else. Right. I, I had kind of these symptoms. I thought it was my fibro. And I woke up at like three in the morning. I'm like, man, I don't feel good. And realized, no, this is real. I'm peeing blood. I need to go to the doctor. So I call my doctor. And of course, when you're peeing blood, they're like, eh, no, you got to go to the emergency room. And I'm like, no, really, I know what this is. My body is screwed up. Like, I can just come in and get some antibiotics, right? No, you got to go to the emergency room. So my husband takes me to the emergency room, and I'm laying there and feeling generally kind of miserable and, you know, just had to pee into a cup and hand it to a nurse, which is always really dignified. And the doctor walks in, and it turns out to be some guy my husband went to high school with. Oh, God. And so he's like, oh, hey, I see. Richard, hey, how are you? (laughs) (laughs) And he looks at me, he's like, He's like, yeah, so I don't know. I'll just give you some Cipro. You want some Percocets too? I'll get you some Percocets. I'm like, I okay, yeah. 
So I was kind of just laying there tripping balls while my husband and his buddy from high school caught up. Caught up, yeah. Be careful with the Percocet because um, Percocet tends to bind you up and makes you amazingly constipated. Like I, I yes. am, I am allergic to non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, so I can't take Advil, Motrin, Aleve, nothing like that. I can take Tylenol and I can take Percocet. So there's like a whole range of pain management that I do. Like okay, Tylenol and red wine will manage these cramps. Right, but, right. But these cramps, oh, I'm just gonna go for the Percocet. But like Percocet comes with it a whole regimen of self-care to ensure that you don't injure yourself. Um, when it is time for your body to do what it naturally does with waste because yeah. it is so incredibly binding. And I hear these stories of people who are addicted to Percocet taking like hundreds of them a day. And I'm like, do you poop ever, ever, ever? How do I you do that? I don't think so because I had to take it after I had surgery last year. And I remember at one point telling my husband, like, I'm going to go to the bathroom, whatever you hear. <laughs> don't come in here right like I'm I was negotiating with God at that point like, what, what My... I would do to be able to go to the bathroom and then <laughs> I had a friend who um had a hysterectomy right after giving birth it was one of those where they had they had found like precancerous cells and it was like okay we're gonna wait till you know you give birth and then everything's coming right out yeah and so um they it's like a, it's like a clearance vaginally. sale at a store that's closing. Right. So they had gone in vaginally. And she said when they sent her home with the Percocet, they told her, be very careful you don't get constipated because you can strain so hard you tear your stitches and things will fall out of your vagina. Oh, my God. Oh, God. That's horrifying. That is horrifying. This is the worst podcast ever. I know. I I'm like, I'm, I, I feel like when I when I post this, I need to post two. Like, we'll post this one, and it'll be all about terribly disgusting things and pain management with romance novels. And then I'll do another one, and it'll be like, and this one is about flowers, right? Flowers and fluffy clouds, and and some pretty smells. Like, do we I start over. <laughs> I can tell you though. Because I am a regular uh, user, not regular, I have a I have a prescription of Percocet that I get from my doctor at my annual exam. I get my EpiPen, I get my Percocet, and I get my blood pressure, I get an EEG, and then it's, you know, out for the year because I've got my annual exam. And I hide the Percocet in different places, and, I, and, and one prescription of maybe 24 tablets will last me two years because I hardly ever take them because the, the side effects are so unpleasant. Mm -hmm. But... I know that the minute I get one, I have to get the Miralax. Now, Miralax is the most wonderful thing ever because a lot of laxatives will use oil to make things easier. For your, okay. for your legislation to pass, it will use an oil. Miralax draws water to the bowel so that it is a much more controllable, less disgusting, and more pleasant passage of legislation. I really like congressional metaphors for this, actually, now yes. that I think about it. <laughs> so I have I have the Percocet and the Miralax in the same place because you, you got one, you got to take the other. So I have um, kind of a formal relationship with my dad. Like, we don't talk about things ever that are, mm -hmm. you know, um, no. So he had prescription for Percocet. And I was like, okay, I'm about to send you an email that will embarrass us both. And we do not need to mention this ever again. 
but you are on Percocet and I imagine you're taking more than one a day, possibly two, up to four. This is the thing you will get. Here is a link for you to order it. This will arrive in your home in 24 hours. You will take this every day, twice a day, or you will be in deep, deep agony. And like two days later, I got a two word email. Thank you. <laughs> that was it. That's because phenomenal. seriously, Miralax is about the only thing that will help me manage the horrible, horrible side effects. Percocet is some serious business. It is. And I'm going to feel free to edit this out. As my beloved sister would say, it's like trying to shit out an upside down Christmas tree. <laughs> <laughs> God. Oh, jeez. Oh, yeah. Oh, so, yeah. So back to fibro and reading. Oh, that was something. Um, that was phenomenal. <laughs> so, yeah, J uh, Jill Shalvis is actually one of my comfort reads, too. I really like her Lucky Harbor series. And then she's got an Animal Magnetism series. Although I will say this, not to Jill Shalvis, because it is not her fault, but the nice people at whoever her publishing house is, Make the dog on the cover of the book match the breed of dog on the inside of the book. Why would you do that? They on uh, still the one, the dog in the book is a German Shepherd. The dog on the cover is an Australian Shepherd. Like, at least get Axis or Allies right, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> that's so annoying because I keep reading it and I'm like, where's the Australian Shepherd? What happened to him? <laughs> well, at least... Um at least the Photoshop of the pets has gotten better. Like I know that Harlequin has done casting calls for specific dogs for some of their uh, Kristen Higgins books. And so they go out and look for a very specific type of dog that matches the description of the book that's already written, which is pretty smart, hard to do if you're a publisher, but pretty smart. The Photoshopping of a dog that clearly was nowhere near the same place as the person in the photograph that I'm glad is coming to an end. It was so bad at one point. I remember thinking it was like someone cut the pictures out of a Foster's and Smith catalog and just like super, like someone, someone Get in the, the Harlequin stick. factory was just glue sticking them on every individual book that came down the line. Get the glue stick, y'all. We need some glue stick. On it. <laughs> yes. So I read a lot of historicals when I'm feeling crappy. Um, I really like Julie Ann Long's Penny Royal Green series. That's a wonderful com comfort read series. Isn't it? And the first book is so good. It um, the, the first book opens with the hero about to be, is it hanged or hung? I think it depends on who you ask. Okay. Well, he's about to be one of those two Strung things. Strung up. Right. For something he didn't do. And he is, at the very last minute, rescued by the heroine, except he doesn't know who this woman is or why she's rescuing him. And so it's, it's a regency, but there's tons of action and movement um, going on in the book. And I really love that. I really like um, Eloisa James, and I've talked about her a ton. Let's see, who else do I read a lot of? Did you uh, meet her and cry on her? I totally fangirled at RT. I she was clearly disturbed. Redheaded girl was with me, and she can substantiate that I scared the shit out of Eloisa James. Oh dear. So, also Elizabeth Hoyt. I love her books too, and I think we scared the shit out of her because I had been trying to find her at RT, and I was desperate to meet her and tell her how much I loved her books. And the only time we could find her was at the awards after party. And we had already gone to bed, so I showed up at the after party wearing yoga pants and a t-shirt and no bra to meet the- Classy! Right, and people were like, who the fuck is that? And she just totally <laughs> rolled with it. She's like, yo, 
she was fine with it. No, I really love her books. So basically all the authors that I've scared in person. Lisa Kleypas, I haven't met her to scare her yet, but I love her books. I love the Wallflower series. Those are also a wonderful comfort read series. One of the things I think that is that those two sets have in common, the Penny Royal Green series and the Wallflower series, is that there's a lot of family, either biological family or found family, taking care of one another in that world. Yes. Same with the Bridgertons. Like in the Penny Royal Green series, there's a family feud. There's two major um, landed families that have long-standing history of you know scoring points off each other. And then there's relationships and friendships and sibling relationships where they all sort of take care of each other and watch out for each other and give each other a lot of shit. And with the Wallflowers is the same thing. It's a found family of four women who do the same thing. And the sex scene in The Devil in Winter is, for some reason, the hottest thing I've ever read. I, I love why. that book so much. I mean, it, I I start writing about that book and I pick it up to look up a word. And then like two hours later, I've read like a, more than half of it. And let's see. I, I do have the Bridgertons in my I've, – I've got these floating shelves in my bedroom. And that's where all of my these will never be sold, traded, or loaned out comfort reads are. So the Bridgertons are up there. Um, I have Lisa Kleypas's, um books. I have, oh, Mary, is it Balog or Balo or? Balog. Balog. Rhymes with Kellogg. Her Survivors Club series is phenomenal, and it will make you cry, but also feel so good. And it's another found family. It's about this group of people. They've all survived um, the Napoleonic War, and they've come home either physically or mentally scarred or both. And they're all completely unable to function within society and they get together at this guy's castle basically and they just take care of each other and the books take place for further out in the future but they always come back every year and have this reunion and they're the only people who can truly understand what the others have gone through because they experienced it similarly and one of the main they're all men except for one woman uh, Imogen and it's interesting because they never treat her any differently because she was a woman and she had these awful experiences. She's just part of that group that is united and, and having this really traumatic past. And the theme of all of the books is it's okay to have this thing wrong with you and being in love doesn't necessarily make it go away, but having people love you makes it better. And no matter how damaged you are, you still deserve to be loved. And they're just wonderful books, but they, are, they definitely make me weepy. So what, like, one hint, one, one hit of a magic peen doesn't cure all of the problems? Exactly. Oh, amazing. How does that work? It is really interesting in the most recent book, which I think is only a kiss, um, it's Imogen's story, and the hero assumes that she was raped, and that was what happened to her and why she's so traumatized, and that's not at all what happened to her. And it's kind of a, like... My pain doesn't have to be that thing just because I'm a woman, right? You're, mm -hmm. you're making these assumptions about what happened to me that aren't true. And actually what happened to her is, um, you know, just this horrible traumatic event that I can't even imagine. But it takes them a while to realize, oh, I'm making all these assumptions about you uh, because of your gender. And by the way, they're totally wrong. Yep. And I'm an asshole. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. <laughs> What other books do you recommend for people who are dealing with, with chronic issues? Anything by Nora Roberts. 
I really, really love her wedding series, The Bridal Quartet. Is that it? I love The Bridal Quartet. I love it. Which one is your favorite? I Probably the first one. I like the idea of Mac kind of um, finding herself through photography. Like there's this moment in the very beginning of the book where she talks about her dad giving her a, a camera and her grandma being kind of shitty about it because her parents were getting divorced. And all of the pictures she took were really crappy until she and her friend were playing wedding and she got like the perfect shot. And she does, I think you call it competence porn. Yep, competence so porn. So well. Like I don't even need the hero and the sex or any of that. It's like, I just want, tell me about how you became a photographer. Tell me about how you do your job. I love that. And what's her other series that I like? It's the Sisters on the Island, the name of which I can't think of. There's a couple sister series that she has. There's the sisters who uh, run a bookshop in Monterey. There's the Three Sisters series where they, there's the, the ones where they're in Ireland. There's a lot of sisters in her world. This is the one where they're all witches. Oh, that would be the Donovans. That's the one. I really like that one. And I have to say, who's ever re-releasing her books with these absolutely beautiful covers? And oh, aren't they paperback? gorgeous? Oh, my God. It's so they're bad for my gorgeous. budget. They're truly gorgeous. And they're beautifully produced. Like, they're nice to touch. Yes. You got to spoon it. <laughs> one thing I really like about Nora's competence porn is that you get a very real sense of not only the person's job and their career, but why it is the thing that they do. And it reveals their character. Yes. So the thing that they do is important for personal character reasons, as well as really being interested to read about. Yes. She I totally agree. She writes a lot of competence porn. I, I actually have her newest one. I think it's out next month. And I was sent an early finished copy. And my realtor used it in staging the house because it matched the rug. <laughs> you know, it'd be really funny if they showed your house and like that was gone when you got back. I was actually a little worried. Like there's an arc and an early Nora. And I was like, if this is here for the open house, is someone going to swipe my book? Right. Wouldn't yeah. If somebody knew that that book wasn't out yet, they'd be like, I, oh, I bumped into the table. I'm not going to lie. I'd do it. <laughs> You're not invited to my open house. Well, no. <laughs> so what are some other things that you do to sort of... If, can, you can sort of sense when bad shit is on the horizon physically, right? Yeah, I can. Um, and a lot of it is just making sure that I'm taking care of myself. And um, I, I have a TENS unit that I love. And so a TENS unit is, um, it's a device that looks like a remote control. And then there are like sticky pads that are attached by cords. And so you put the pads um on your body where you're having pain and then the remote control thing it sends an electrical impulse and mm. it doesn't it doesn't hurt it feels warm and tingly um and it, it sort of resets your nerves like hey wait no no right okay now much better and it also has like a, a rub or a massage function where it actually does stimulate like your your muscles and your tendons so i'm using it now it's really really creepy to watch because like if i put it on my arm my hand will my fingers will move and stuff, and I'm not doing it intentionally. It's just how it's um, the electrical impulses are are working, and that helps a lot. I've found lots of sleep, sunlight, going for walks. Let's see what else. Definitely cuddling Dewey. Um, having a pet, I think, is tremendously important to coping with, whether it's anxiety or depression or 
um, chronic pain. Purring is very therapeutic. Purring is very therapeutic. And I swear he knows when I don't feel good because he's like, okay, I'm just going to come over here and purr and make biscuits on you. Um, the, those, <laughs> I'm going to knead your stomach. In a few hours, I'll have a loaf of bread. Right. Yes. Biscuits will be made. <laughs> uh, other I'm sure you can hear Spawn. He's eating and spinning his food dish around. That's awesome. Dingy, 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 ding. We got Dewey one of those little wobbly toys that you fill with crunchy treats and they have to knock it around to get the treats to fall out. And so we don't fill it all the time. Obviously, it's just sitting on the floor every now and then he walks up to it and he just slaps it disdainfully like you're empty. <laughs> I am not amused. Right. So and some of it is you have to learn to deal with the bullshit that comes with having any kind of I call it like an invisible illness and um, whether it's a mental or a physical illness, people will not believe you and they will judge you. And that's just the shitty reality of dealing with it. Um, I would recommend everyone apply for FML, family medical leave. So just as an extra level of protection. So what I do is I, I qualify obviously for FML and it's not a big deal. Your doctor fills out some paperwork and in fact, your doctor doesn't fill it out. One of his nurses does and then stamps a signature on it that says, yes, you have this thing mm -hmm. and it is protected unpaid time off, but you can take it in conjunction with time off. So if I have to be sick because of fibro and I take a sick day, I also let HR know that I am taking eight hours of FML during this time. And then theoretically your employer cannot come back at you for that because you are protected. And it always blows my mind the number of people that have these chronic illnesses that don't do that. And I think it's it's really important to protect yourself from that perspective legally. There are, unfortunately, a number of places where if you use a benefit like that, you become targeted. Yes. And it's harder and harder to sometimes figure out whether or not using your family medical leave will result in you're being honest about what kind of care you need and what you're doing or you being targeted for replacement because you miss too much work. Right. That is, and, and I completely agree with that. I mean, it's, it's one of the scary things that it really depends on the culture you work in and the people you work for. It's true. You know, whether or not they view this as, as legitimate. And I'm, I've always been very honest with the people I work for. This is what I have and this is what it feels like. And um, I've taken that route rather than the not discussing it route and kind of hiding it. And that's just a personal choice that people unfortunately have to make. I know plenty of people who don't want to talk about it because they don't want to be targeted for some form of retaliation. And it, like we were talking about earlier, the sort of work at the expense of all else culture does not help people who are otherwise excellent employees and, and very responsible people who need more time for self-care. Right. Or yeah, they cannot absolutely. function. Absolutely. Um, and people say shitty things. I mean, I, you know, I've had people tell me, um, you know, oh, my sister-in-law says she has that, but that's just because she doesn't want to work. You oh, know? God. And, oh. Uh, yeah, I mean, and, and that's, oh. or I, oh, that's, isn't she's, that? She's just lazy. She's just lazy. Or, you know, that the implication is, I think, that people who have these chronic things that you can't see 
are somehow milking the system. And, you know, my response to that is always, I put in 55 to 60 hours a week at my current job. I've never been on any sort of benefit, not that there's anything wrong with that. And incidentally, prescription painkillers um, like opioids do nothing for fibro pain. So yep. I'm certainly not drug seeking because I'm not taking any of those things. Yep. Um, I come to work and ring the bell when I'm in more pain than you can probably imagine. So suck my dick. <laughs> that's that's one of the things that I'm like that I, I always I always wonder like if someone is used to dealing with pain, their low level tolerance is higher than most people's. Oh yeah, and that's actually a problem. Um, I have really legitimately hurt myself or been becoming ill, and because my pain tolerance is so high, I haven't been aware of it. Like, oh well, you know, this is like a five for me, where on another person that would be like a nine or a ten, and oh my god, shoot me with morphine now. So the story I always tell is my mom, my sister, and I were on vacation in Chicago, and we were walking around downtown, and we'd gone to like Water Tower Plaza and stuff. I just was not feeling good. I was having like some lower back pain. I just didn't feel great. And so they went back to the hotel and I told them, you know, I just need to lie down. Something's going on here. And they went, I think, to the pool or something. And I took a hot bath and then I lied down for a while. And then I got up and I passed a kidney stone. Oh, dear and God. I had been walking around all day shopping with the kidney stone, passed it. And then I was like, okay, I'm good. We can go to dinner. Because to me, the level of pain I was in was manageable. The other one was I had my tonsils out when I was 28 and they told me, you know, like this is the worst surgery to have as an adult and you're going to be in so much pain and you still make sure you're, you're not even going to want to swallow your saliva, but you have to drink, you have to take care of yourself. And I get out of surgery and like, you know, the first day you're all drugged up and weird anyway. But by the second day, I was like, meh. And by day three, um, I had called my doctor and I'm like, so what can't I eat? Because I really, really want a bacon cheeseburger. And he's like, who is this? <laughs> um, but, you know, it was just, it was, you know, I didn't feel great, but I could deal with it. It wasn't like horrid. So, yeah, your pain tolerance is definitely altered. And then I'm very lucky from a self-care perspective, too, because I do have a very busy, stressful 60-hour-a-week job. I have a part-time house husband who's standing here looking at me, who does all of the cooking, which is good because I can't cook anyway. Um, <laughs> and I would say 90% of the cleaning and does the laundry and irons my clothes for work and basically just takes care of me. And that was a process in our marriage too where it was just learning to communicate how I really felt and what I really needed and, and you know how we were going to cope with this. Because I think in a lot of ways you're taught to diminish the pain that you're in. Oh, no, 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 it's fine. And one of the things I had to learn that I still struggle with is no matter how shitty you feel, you are accountable for how you treat other people and how you make them feel. Because when you're in a lot of pain, you're hyper-emotional and everything feels a lot harder and it's easy to be brittle and be mean and just not be pleasant to deal with. But you still own that. Um, it is not the other person's fault that you feel like crap. And you have to be able to manage yourself without making lashing out part of your therapy. Yes. So are there any books that you have read recently that you recommend that you want to tell everyone that they should go read immediately? Yes. So I just finished Jenny Lawson's Furiously Happy, and I reviewed it for the site. And if you don't know her, she writes just a blog called The Blog S, and she is 
absolutely hilarious. And she's got a couple different um, disorders. She's got rheumatoid arthritis. She's also got anxiety, depression, OCD. And these are things that really challenge her daily. And her blog is both um, these really poignant reflections on that, but also just the funniest shit you can imagine. And so this is her second book, and it's it's similar to the blog where some of it she's talking about, like, times she's called the suicide hotline, not necessarily because she was suicidal, but because she needed to talk to a person who told her it was going to be okay, and that her depression was lying to her. Mm-hmm. And then you also have these um, chapters where she's talking about how she wants an emotional support pony named Pony Danza, and how she's going to bring him on the airplane with her dressed in pajamas. <laughs> and it's just, it's one of those books that makes you cry, and then it makes you laugh so hard that you should not be in public. <laughs> well, your your review was hilarious. It was very, very well done. Awesome. And I also know that a number of people purchased it based on the review. Woo! Yay! The other thing, um, you know, I don't know whether or not you want to include this in the podcast or not, that you have to learn when you deal with chronic pain is, oh, hey, this affects uh, your sex life. Surprise. And that's a difficult thing to talk about. That is something that people, and that's where I said some of it is really planning ahead and some of it is being spontaneous because if I'm not having a pain day and I feel really good, it's like we're not leaving this house, right? Because mm-hmm. I don't know <laughs> when my next non-pain day is going to be. It's, it's you have to learn how to, first of all, communicate that, but then also be okay with the fact that, that your sex life is going to change. Yep. And it's going to be unpredictable. Absolutely. Which can be very frustrating for people who like to, you know, have a regular schedule and also have sex when they are interested in doing so. There are there are actually books out there on how to have sex with fibro or with chronic pain because there are accommodations that that you can make. But part of it is just you don't feel good and you don't want to. Right. 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 Um, But what kind of accommodations? I mean, we've already talked about everything else. Well, I think what kind of accommodations can you metaphorically describe? I'm so, kidding, by the so, way, if you don't want to talk about oh, it. Oh, no, we can talk about it. So, I mean, there's accommodations, like, depending on the type of pain that you have or where it is located, I mean, even just positioning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, your definitely sexual gymnastics are are gone, which is cool because I've re- we've reached the age, too, where we're both, like, if we could both be on the bottom and somehow figure that out, we would totally do it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so some of it is just positioning. Um, but some of it is, you know, there are ways to be sexually intimate that don't necessarily involve intercourse, right? And some nope. of that is just if you're not comfortable using that language or having those discussions within the context of your relationship. And as the bitchery knows, I am a chronic oversharer. Um, no. A shrinking, a shrinking violet, as Carrie would say. No, no, no. I never would have guessed. I'm looking at my bookshelf. Oh, I have to tell you guys about this book. Yes, please. Okay. It's super crazy, and I know that there are going to be people listening whose ears are going to perk up, and they're going to be like, what? I need this. So it's very old schooly, but I think it's from 2013. It's by Julianne McLean, and it's called Be My Prince. It's this royal trilogy she has. So it's set like in a Regency-type England, and there's a fictitious country, I think it's called Petersburg. I think, I don't know if it's a reference to Russia, whatever. Anyway, so the crown prince is in England, and all of the eligible ladies are freaking the fuck out because rumor has it he's there to find a wife and they really want to get married uh, to a prince. And the heroine 
so you find out that his family um, got to the throne because their father was like a general or something. There was a coup d'etat. So the heroine is secretly the real crown princess or should be crown princess of this country. And she's kept it on the, the DL and she's got like a secret benefactor who's helping sponsor her season. And she's got to get this guy to marry her. And then I'm assuming her benefactor will do something or whatever. So she can win back the throne that belongs to her family. But the problem is she doesn't really like the prince. She's totally in love with the prince's brother. So then it gets crazier and I'm, I'm giving you guys kind of a spoiler. So spoiler alert. But then the prince's brother is really the prince because you find out he wanted to marry someone who loved him, not just wanted to be the princess. Good luck so, with that, dude. Right. So they switched roles top secretly. Oh. Right? Ooh. Yeah. It's very crazy sauce, old schooly, um, insanity, identity, switching, secret princess mayhem. It's glorious. That sounds like a tremendous amount of fun. It does. Um, other comfort reads. Oh, I really like Ashlyn McNamara. Really? I do. And I, I also like her anachronistic tidy whitey covers because the uh, there there's some serious dude butt on her covers. I don't know if you've seen these. Like what a lady demands. He is totally wearing some skin tight tidy whities and he's got like a serious David Beckham mask happening. Right. And there's just a tiny, tiny, tiny little hint of crack. And I actually saw her at RT and she was discussing like there's a team that has to sit down and discuss like the level of crack that is it, it's very specific and scientific like the amount of crack you can show and still have Amazon sell your books. So um, yeah and she also has one where the dude's in a terry cloth towel and she fully owned up to the fact that terry cloth was definitely not a thing in the Regency. <laughs> yeah just a little. Just yeah sorry. So I, I enjoy her books as well in terms of just kind of Regency, crazy comfort reading. And I'm trying to remember the most recent one I read. And, of course, I'm completely blanking. I just know I liked it. It's really not helpful at all. That's okay. I, I'm pretty sure I can identify Ashlyn McNamara butt crack covers. That's not going to be a problem. I feel like there's more information I should be imparting to the listeners. And I'm just like, there was butt crack on the covers and the book made me happy. Sometimes that's really all you need to know. You know? So Sometimes you just need butt crack and a happy book. Pretty much. Um, <laughs> I feel like butt crack and a happy book. Like I, I, That's the name of my band. Butt crack and a happy book? It's a good name for a band. Yeah, I think so. I, <laughs> I, and I told you guys, I just called my, my romance novel collection and, mm -hmm. and I sold some and I was very freaked out about it. I was like, you have to promise me that they're going to go to a good home and <laughs> someone's really going to love them. <laughs> you had to thin out the collection to make room I for did. more. I did. It was getting really, really bad. We had like stacks and piles and little castles built and Dewey was knocking shit down all the time and then looking at me like, well, you put it here. It's your fault, lady. It, it is hard to let go of books that you like having around, but you need more room. Like, that's a really hard line to draw. Yeah, I think so. I mean, for me, it is anyway, because I, I very much have memories of how I felt or what was going on in my life when I read a specific book. Oh, me too. If you have, if you have the tangential 
or that, excuse me, the tangible connection of where you were or what you were doing when you read that book, it, it not only affects what you think of the book, but it affects how you feel when you see the book on your shelf. Absolutely. Um, I love Tessa Dare. And during my most recent flare up, it was one of those, I was still awake at three in the morning and I'm like, there's no way I am going to go into work and be anything remotely like productive. And so mm-hmm. I, I emailed my boss and said, you know, I'm just not feeling good. And I kind of rewarded myself for not beating myself emotionally up over that by pulling the blanket over my head and realizing um, or reading When a Scott Ties the Knot. And I read it in one sitting and it was just absolutely glorious. It's medicinally therapeutic books, right? Absolutely. And I I think that's one of the things that, um, you know, when I talk about self-care, you know, nutrition and rest and all those things are important. I absolutely could not give up books. I mean, they are 100% vital to my mental and physical well-being. And I'm not sure people who aren't readers understand that, that this is, I I would not be okay without them. I, uh, my problem is, is that reading time for me is incredibly important because it is the isolated, quiet time wherein I only do one thing. And if it's interrupted or taken away from me, I get really, really angry. And, you know, if someone is reading a book, that is not when you go talk to them. Absolutely. And so it's not an activity where I can just sort of put my finger down and have a conversation and go back. It's like, I'm, I'm not here right now and I don't want to be here right now. Exactly. No, I, I don't know what it is about women reading in restaurants when you're like, I, I have left and gone to this restaurant for lunch specifically so I can have alone time and read. Mm hmm. Do not come over and talk to me. I don't wish to be spoken to. My book is not an invitation to have a conversation. I'm perfectly happy. Like, I feel like there's a specific subset of dudes when they see a woman reading in public, like, they get like, oh, lonely cat woman. I'm going (laughs) to talk to her. (laughs) Right? Okay, true story. A couple years ago, we dropped our kids off at camp, and we were like, we're alone in the car with just the two of us. We could do whatever we want for lunch. We're really hungry. So let's go to Taco Bell. Because we haven't had those new Doritos tacos, so we went to Taco Bell. And having the Doritos tacos, they were okay. I liked them fine. And there was a man in the in the Taco Bell, whole tray of delicious lunch, straight up reading Nora Roberts. Hell I have yeah. never, I have never wanted to approach someone who is reading a book in a restaurant so badly, and I refuse to allow myself to do it. Like I we was were- just. This is amazing. This guy is straight up into this Nora Roberts. And it wasn't a suspense. It was one of the contemporaries. I was like, you're the man in your Taco Bell, reading reading Nora Roberts, eating Doritos tacos. This is the greatest human being alive at this moment in this restaurant, second only to my husband. I love this guy. Would not let myself go talk to him because he was reading. And that would be wrong. We were flying home from Puerto Vallarta once, and it was really late at night. And we had one of those flights where I'm assuming they're running the flight because they're repositioning the plane because there were like five of us Mm -hmm. right and the the stewardess or i'm sorry that's not correct the flight attendant flight attendant is like just you know sit wherever you want and bring me if you want a snack right yeah and so i'm kind of stretching out to take a a nap and there's a an older gentleman sitting up the aisle reading a bunch of he like had a stack of harlequin presents there awesome i was like you get down with your bad greek tycoon secret virgin secretary mistress Pregnesia story, sir. I respect you. <laughs> I oh, that brings me Harlequin presents. I also like Harlequin presents when I'm feeling crappy because they're short, 
and I can mainline them. And I also really like the idea that you can be working at an ice cream shop and a billionaire who has no time to do anything but somehow has all this free time will see you and spirit you away in his helicopter. Oh, billionaire tycoon CEOs in Harlequin Presents Land never have to do any actual work. No, absolutely not. And they have a lot of time to work out in tan, apparently. And they can just go on and find a boat and get on it and it's fine. Yep, absolutely. Um, they, their peens somehow sense virgins. It's like a, like one of those water sticks. It's a, it's, it's a divining rod. It's a divining rod for, for starry-eyed virgins. That's right. I have never read more books where somehow a virgin has a baby than Harlequin Presents. Like, it is remarkable. Oh, the, the ability of women to conceive miraculously in Harlequin Presents lands is fascinating. It, it is... There's some some crazy shit in Harlequin Present Land Water. <laughs> it really is. It's so true. Because everybody gets pregnant. Oh, everyone is extremely fertile. Yes. Like, really, really fertile. So here's a question, and this doesn't have to be on the podcast or anything. So when you were struggling with fertility issues, was it really difficult for you to read that? Like, did you want to oh, yeah. punch if, some authors? If somebody had like, oh, and then, she, you know, they, the, the, the epilogue had a baby, I, I specifically sought out books where babies weren't happening. Because it always blows my mind that it's like, you can never get pregnant because you don't have a uterus, but somehow she does. And you're like, where the fuck is the baby? <laughs> it's in her sinus cavity. <laughs> Where's it growing? Oh yeah, and I and if I read books where there were fertility problems and they were just solved by the right guy with the right orgasm, I was like, you know what? Uh uh-uh. uh. Nope 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 nope. Because you know if you're going through actual fertility problems, there's a whole host of things that could be wrong. And finding the right medical and chemical and medicinal balance, like this cream and that patch and this pill, and then this cream and then this pill, and then these shots. The shots are great. And like an entire rocket line of doctors needs to be involved in getting you pregnant. It's not just going to happen with the power of one orgasm. And that is all for this week. Thank you to Elise. For all of the extremely candid discussion, I hope you guys enjoyed that podcast interview and that you weren't totally grossed out because I would feel a little bad about that. This podcast is brought to you by Intermix, publisher of The Clockwork Samurai, the steamy new gunpowder chronicle novel by national best-selling author Jeannie Lin. The podcast transcript is sponsored by Renee Adie, author of The Wrath and the Dawn, published by G.P. Putnam Sons Books for Young Readers, available in print and ebook. This sumptuous retelling of A Thousand and One Nights will transport you to a land of golden sand and forbidden romance. She came for revenge, but will she stay for love? The music you're listening to is provided by Sassy Outwater. You can find her on Twitter, at Sassy Outwater. This is Adeste Fiddles. This is Deviations Project. This is Three Ships. This is probably my favorite song on the whole album because it's so awesome. You can find this on iTunes, on Amazon, or wherever music is sold. I will have links to all of the books that we discussed along with the TENS unit that Elise mentioned. And if you have any questions or suggestions or you want to reach out to Elise, feel free to email me at sbjpodcast at gmail.com. But in the meantime, have a very happy holiday. And on behalf of Elise and Jane and myself, we wish you the very best of reading. Have a great weekend. I'm really sad that um, that we didn't get a chance to do our uh, Wisconsin and New Jersey advertisement for president. Yes, 
Oh, Scott Walker, you D-bag. Yeah, listen, America, you you don't really want that. It's a bad idea. Forgive so, me for imitating you to your face. No, no, that is totally fine. 